Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the amazing city of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and with me, Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. Hey, Dan. How Hi. are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. You know spring is here finally. Uh, finally. I, I even saw sun for a hot minute today. I know. Sun did come out. It's nice. It's looking good. It's gone. <laughs> oh, never mind. <laughs> Welcome to Michigan. There we go. Oh, well. But that means also that we're starting to plant our little gardens. We are. I'm planting this weekend. We're planting in two weeks. Mm. I got I to gotta clean the place out. Yeah. Yeah. I did that three weeks ago when it was 85 degrees. <laughs> Where was I? Before it was then 35 degrees. (laughs) That is the fun of Michigan. That is fun. But anyway, on today's episode, we talk with Dr. Juan Mora, who about how Latinx migrant farm workers have shaped the Midwest, especially here in Michigan. Since World War II, migrant workers have been the backbone of our agricultural and food supply chains by either the federal government, growers, or consumers. Latino migrant agricultural workers are considered the essential workers of the economy. What is eye-opening also is that there is an intersect of Mexican, Mexican-Americans, and Puerto Rican farm workers all doing this work together. So what insights can we gain by looking at these workers and the communities that have been developed since the 1940s? And that is why we are talking to Dr. Mora. He is a visiting assistant professor, postdoctoral fellow in the Department of History's Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity in Society at the University of Indiana. He received his PhD in history from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in May 2021 and is turning his dissertation into his first book, Latino Encounters, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, and Puerto Ricans in the Making of the Midwest. He was also one of our Fishman awardees, so we are always happy to talk to our winners about their research. And his research focuses on Michigan agricultural industry, starting around the 1940s. Now, in 1942, Michigan was the third largest state producing sugar beets. More farmers than any other state were harvesting them, and 80% of them relied on migrant workers. And how did they get that help? Well, there was the Brasario Program, which was an agreement between Mexico and the United States, which was a temporary guest worker program that lasted from 1942 to 1964. And then there was the Puerto Rico Farm Labor Program that lasted from 1949 to 1990. Both programs brought millions of agricultural workers to Michigan, harvesting sugar beets, cucumbers, cherries, and other crops. Mexican, Mexican-Americans from the border towns of Texas and the Puerto Ricans all at the heart of the food supply chain to feed America. Mura's research takes us into the fields and living quarters, which were a complex balance of cultures, social and political intersects among Latinx workers and families. There were collaborations and strifes, pro-union, and which deciding on which union to join, the UFW or the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, and of course the anti-union people, as well as hierarchies and classism among these workers. And all the while, the U.S. government officials, farmers, and U.S. citizens created a racialization of these three groups. What Mora has done is write about a very intricate web with a fine lens to understand issues of emerging Latinx communities in the Midwest. Now, with this podcast, this fascinating interview with Dr. Mora about his work for his future book titled, for now, Latino Encounters, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans in the Making of the Midwest. And as I mentioned earlier about the Fishman Award, well, that's an annual grant that we provide up to $1,000 to support travel to the Ruther Library to access archival records related to the American labor movement. 
The award is named in honor of Sam Fishman, a former UAW and Michigan AFL-CIO leader. Now, this year's awardees have already been picked and named, but uh, in early fall, we opened it up again. So if you're interested, please stay tuned. On with the show. Juan, thank you for being on Tales for the Rooster. Um, welcome. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure to to be on this wonderful podcast. And yeah, I'm happy to be here. Cool. And you are one of the recipients of our Fishman Award, right? Yes, I, I completed my my visit in September. Um, that's now my my third or fourth visit to the to the <laughs> Ruther. So I'm very familiar with it at this point. Um, but it it was uh, it was a very productive trip, and now I actually have to go through everything that I that I collected. Now you have to look through all those pictures. You took. yeah. So <laughs> right when so when I was reading about your topic, um, the first thing that came to my mind is like. You know, um, which led you to this specific topic um, for your dissertation, which is now being turned into a book. Um, so I'm just wondering where you got the idea for for this. Um, so it's I I thinking about that question. I have a um, somewhat circuitous route to it when I when I applied to grad school and when I came into grad school. Um, I was actually focused um, on becoming an urban historian. Um, now, this project on on migrant agricultural workers in the Midwest is 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 seemingly very different from that. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, I came in um, with the focus on U.S. urban history. Formal training still was was as an urban historian. Um, but I came in looking at um, the the Young Lords organization in Chicago, um, who was they, they were a, a gang um, who who turned into um, this this Puerto Rican political organization um, in the 1960s. Um, and so when we when we started when I started grad school, we we everyone all first year students are kind of they're they're tasked with writing this first year paper, which is you know kind of your your first your first chance as a graduate student or as a graduate student at that institution to um to try your chops at doing archival research at seeing what you can produce seeing like what kind of arguments you can make um and so i knew coming into into this that i i wanted to to keep my focus in the midwest but i did want to um extend myself outside of chicago um and so i just i honestly just started looking through finding guides at the ruther um somewhere local i still thought i was i i, I still thought i was going to do something in detroit so i was still very much like going to just do urban history still um and I think the original the original idea that I was very interested in was um, looking at the relationship between the United Auto Workers and the United Farm Workers, and so kind of looking at these massive, um, these powerful, these influential unions. Um, but as I started, you know, this is that that would have been a very big project, and so the the faculty members that were leading that are like that that's more of a dissertation like you need to narrow this down so then I just start looking at I'm just like okay I'm just going to find I'm just going to look at Mexican farm workers in the Midwest um 
And so I make the trip to the Ruther. Um, I'm, I'm going through sources. This was like on a graduate school budget. So, you know, $50 Greyhound mm -hmm. ticket, sharing a room in an Airbnb. Um, just <laughs> Good not, time. My favorite, Good <laughs> not my favorite conditions. Um, but I, I, I find a, a whole trove of stuff um, on Mexican farm workers in the Midwest. Um, as I'm going through them, I'm also finding um, cases and letters of Puerto Rican migrant farm workers in the Midwest. Um, and so the, and then finally, the, the last group that I was, as I started writing that paper, it was completely inadequate to just to just distinguish between Mexican and Puerto Rican farm workers. And so it became about Mexican, Mexican American and Puerto Rican farm workers. Um, and so that was really the entrance into um, into the topic itself. Um, much like the groups that I focused on, the time periods also expanded. So at first it was from 1942 to 1951, um, then 1942 to 1964. Um, then what it's now at is for the book manuscript is around 1917, so World War I, um, until about 1990. So it's a far bigger, um, the, the periodization of the project is a lot longer than um, it originally started off with. Um, and so that's, the I think the scholarly origin of it, but in in retrospect and thinking back about it, there there are these elements of this project that have been with me for a very for a very a much longer time. Um, my grandfather was um, was a former bracero, so I, I grew up hearing all these stories about his time in the bracero program. Mm -hmm. um, I spent most of my life living in Chicago, or at least my my. Uh, my childhood growing up in Chicago, which was a Midwestern urban environment um, with vibrant Mexican and Puerto Rican communities. And so I've had this interest for a while now of um, looking at the relationship of these two, um, these these various ethnic groups within the Midwest. Um, and so that's that's all that that's all remained. Just the the setting has changed from uh, from the cities to the fields. Um, but that's generally the the trajectory that um, how I came to this project. Sometimes the best projects are those that are a little bit personal. It gets you. <laughs> yes, and I mean there are there are some there are plenty of people who are working on projects that are even closer to even closer to them. But as in retrospect, I'm like there are these very like personal elements that. Maybe I didn't notice it as I was developing the project, but they've they've just been things that I've thought about for a much longer time than I've been formally working on the project. Right, right. So, all right. So, why what is what is so important about Michigan for the agricultural industry as well as for migrant workers? Yeah, I mean, so that's that's a question that I've I've grappled with for every. Every point of the beginning of writing this paper to to doing the book proposals, doing um, writing, writing um, letters of interest and cover letters for jobs or interviews. You know, the question is, why Michigan? Um, and so I will say that I, I am positioning um, this as a as a Midwestern book, but with a, a particular focus on. Um, Michigan. And so the way the way I see it, the way that I, I talk about it in the book is that I um, I position Michigan as uh, this state that is vital to regional, national and, and even continental developments um, and 
really at, at least during the um, at least in the period after World War II starts. Um, the heart of of Michigan's agricultural industry was um, was sugar beets. So in 1942, when um, the Bracero program begins, um, when um, uh, when the U.S. enters World War II, um, only Ca California and Colorado are producing more sugar beets than Michigan. Um, so it is the third it is the third largest uh, sugar uh, beet producing um, state in the country. And so during this period. Um, Sugar was a critical commodity for a number of reasons, um, for for foods um, and food food goods in particular. But there are also these other things that that they can be used for, like making industrial alcohol. Um, they can be used in the manufacturing of munitions and some uh, synthetic rubber. Um, so sugar beets are a crucial commodity. Um, and so during this time, um, I believe there were 12,000 Michigan farmers engaged in sugar beet harvesting during this period. These mm. operations are a lot smaller um, than the industrial sized um, sugar beet operations in California and Colorado. Um, and so out of those 12,000 Michigan farmers, about 80% of them um, we're utilizing migratory workers. Um, and so sugar beets are, are a big component of, of Michigan's importance to, um, to the regional, national um, um, economy of food businesses, um, but also in addition to, to sugar beets. I mean, the, the Michigan's agricultural um, labor system relied on migratory labor for, for apples, strawberries, cherries, um, cucumbers, asparagus, tomatoes. I mean, you name it. Like it's the state, I think the state was um, around, around the mid 20th century was producing um, I, I believe it's 34 agricultural commodities and they ranked in the top four states in producing 21 of them. So top, top four in producing 21 out of the 34 agricultural commodities um, that they were, that they were, that they were producing at that time. Um, and so it's this really robust agricultural industry. The, the state obviously doesn't have the same geographic size as California, um, as Texas, but it is right up there um, in terms of the production of all of these um, of all these different crops. And then the other component of that is the presence of migrant workers within the state. Um, and so, as I mentioned, Texas and California are the top two states in terms of possessing migrant workers. Um, but in 1957, Michigan's peak seasonal employment was third behind those two. Um, and so that year, I think it was over. Um, over 125,000 migrant farm workers found seasonal employment on Michigan farms. And so, you know, we might not, we might not think of Michigan as a location with such a robust agricultural industry with such a large presence of migrant farm workers. Um, but these Mexican, Mexican, American, and Puerto Rican farm workers were um, they were responsible for much of the labor that was upholding. Um, this agricultural industry. And so that's the way that I've positioned it. I've um, I've become very comfortable with rattling off all those stats um, to justify why, why I think Michigan is so important to the story. Um, but I, I do truly see, see it as this state um, that is, is, is deserving of being in recognition with these other much larger agricultural or these seemingly much larger agricultural industries. Um, so yeah, that's that's the way that I that I use Michigan um, and situate it within my project.
And that's that's very important too. So obviously, we always think of Michigan as auto central and the Detroit, the Motor City. If you forget, there is other industry here, powerful industry as well. Um, yeah, and I mean, lots of migrants. You know, Michigan was this was this state where you could where you could easily go for for seasonal agricultural labor and just you know, when the time was right, figure out when to settle out of that migrant stream and find industrial labor um, or to go to places like like Saginaw, where you have, you know, one of the densest um, areas of sugar beet production in the state, but you also have these massive, um, you have all kinds of um, automotive factories that are also in the area. And so there are these, these opportunities for uh, participating in the economy in different ways, um, finding different kinds of labor, um, and eventually exiting that migrant stream and permanently settling in, um, in Michigan, and especially areas outside of Detroit, too. Right. Oh, that's a completely different conversation right there, man. Right. <laughs> that's so true. That is so true. I didn't really think about it. But let's stay on focus here. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned three geographical areas of migrant workers um, in Michigan, Mexicans, Tejano, and Puerto Ricans. And with this new word for me, racialization of these three different groups. Now, could you explain this term for our audience? We'll explain a little more for me. And, and also, how did it happen? I mean, even though you had the Truman administration, Trying to do a, a good with migratory labor, um, uh, it ended up exemplifying this racism oh. that you're talking about. So I think so. So for that question, yeah, that, and that's a fascinating question. Um, and so yes, this this book, my book, my research is trying to triangulate these three histories of um, Mexicans who are uh, Mexican nationals, so they're coming from Mexico as braceros. Um, um, they're, they have these, um, these state sanctioned labor contracts, um, to, to go from Mexico to the U S, um, in terms of Tejanos, those are, um, typically Mexican Americans that are coming from the state of Texas. Um, some have very longstanding generations worth of, of, of familial lineage to, um, to that state. Some are more recent, um, are, are more, uh, more recent migrants. Um, but Tejanos is this term to, um, for Mexicans uh, or for uh, Mexican Americans that uh, are coming from the state of Texas, um, and then finally, I, I have um, Puerto Rican migrants who are um, who are coming from the archipelago. Um, the the U.S. is I mean Puerto Rico is still a, a territory of the U.S. Um, and so they do they do possess u s citizenship um similar to um similar to the the mexican American migrants that are coming from Texas, but then they're also treated as guest workers too they're given um identification like contract identification numbers, which is similar um to the mexican braceros um and so when when we're looking at these three groups um I treat racialization as these these understandings of different ethnic and racial um, groups that are fraught. They're they're inconsistent. Um, they 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 inform about who is considered white and non-white. Um, both of which are are historically um, and geographically contingent. They they can depend. They can um, on your on your location on the time period, um, and they they change over time. Um, and so these racial constructions are are by no means any kind of biological truth. Um, they are they are constructions. Um, and so 
that's that's how I treat racialization. And then mm-hmm. um, even going one step further is this project does look at these groups relationally. So there's a growing field um, of work in relational racialization, um, which is looking at these different ethnic um, ethnic and racial groups, um, not necessarily comparatively or against each other, but looking at how um, their treatment um, is this mutually constitutive process that it develops new understandings of different, um, of one group of, these understandings of one group can help define um, these ideas about another group. So the treatment that um, ethnic Mexicans or Mexican Americans had could um, create different constructions of the racialization of Puerto Ricans. so when let's say uh, Mexican Americans have this this very um, there there's a much longer presence of Mexicans and Mexican Americans in Michigan than there was Puerto Ricans and in a more substantial one too. Um, so in 1950, um, the Michigan uh, the Michigan Field Crops Incorporated um, they they create this this agreement with the Puerto Rican Department of Labor um, to airlift 5,000. Uh, Puerto Rican migrant farm workers to Michigan. Um, and so this is, it's called Operation Airlift. At this point, it's the biggest, um, it's the biggest non-military airlift in U.S. history. Um, and what Puerto Ricans are entering into, into this, in, in Michigan, is this, this environment where residents, where politicians, where social service um, providers already have these ideas about uh, about ethnic Mexicans, and in some in some instances, Puerto Ricans fit into that those ideas that they already have, and in some instances, um, they they do not. And so that's what what I mean by relational racialization is looking at how um, ideas about Mexicans can inform ideas about Puerto Ricans, and vice versa. Um, and so I, that's part of why I think this 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 period the truman commission is so um offers so many different insights into what this racialization process can look at um it it can it relies on a range of different markers so it's not um it's just not phenotype or skin color but it can be um ethnicity it can depend on citizenship status um language class status gender um and these racializations can be shaped by a bunch of different actors. Um, it can be shaped through media coverage, through um, social reformers, through politicians, a, a variety of other interest groups. So it, it's it's I've rattled off all these different things, all to say that the processes of racialization are are, are varied. There's um, there's a ton of different circumstances that go into these processes, um, and a lot of those come. Um, they they become elevated through the Truman Commission, at least in Michigan. But these the Truman Commission hearings um, were part of this larger agenda of um, Harry S. Truman's um, after he was inaugurated for his second term. Um, the administration began to consider um, establishing this 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 presidential commission, a prominent one at that, um, that could potentially help propel reform um, certain aspects of agricultural labor and migration. Um, and so Truman actually favors legislation that would uh, protect the usage of domestic farm farm labor. So relying on um, U.S. citizens um, for farm labor rather than um, contracted workers from outside of the country. Um, he wanted to increase enforcement along the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, 
and to adjust the terms of the Bracero program. It wasn't necessarily that he wanted to get rid of it immediately, um, but it was to, to hopefully start to try to phase out of the Bracero program since by 1949, by 1950, um, the wartime period is officially over. Um, it ends in 1945. And so from 19, um, from 1945, or I guess 1946 to 1950, it's the Bracero program is in limbo of of you know what do we do with it do we continue it do we do we reduce it do we grow it um do we kind of maintain it at the level that it is um and so in 1950 truman does um issue an executive commission or an executive order to investigate these this wide range of issues um and so the main component of of this commission was hearings that take place all across the country um Mostly, mostly in the Southwest, as um, Truman was very interested in 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 the Bracero program, in the presence of Mexican labor in U.S. in the agricultural industry, um, but it does go outside of the Southwest, um, and so Michigan is the only visit that the Truman Commission makes in the Midwest. So. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we're when we're talking about what are the stakes of focusing on Michigan, I think something like that is also indicative of um, of the importance of Michigan because all all the, the, there's a variety of different states. He the commission focuses on on Arizona and Texas and California, all of these these places that are are well recognized as as hubs of. Um, of migratory labor. Um, and so the Truman Commission does make their visit um, in September of 1950. Um, and these commissions have a wide range of, um, uh, of individuals providing testimony. They, they have religious officials, um, they have social service providers, they have um, um, they have agricultural workers, um, they have politicians, and they also have growers. So they they have a variety of different interest groups across the um, across the spectrum, um, and so there are there are contrasting elements to to these testimonies that are provided. Um, migrants can can give their their firsthand experiences um, about what it's like, what what their experience has been in the field, what it's been like to to labor in this agricultural industry. But at the same time, you could have um, you could have a representative of of the Michigan Field Crops Incorporated who who will say, you know, migrant workers have everything that they could that mm -hmm. they could ever want. You know, if if migrant worker, if the conditions are so bad here, why would they keep on coming? Um, and so there's there's a range of different opinions that are being um, that are being voiced throughout these commission hearings. Um, and so the there's. They have all these hearings. There's a report that comes out uh, of it with with the list of recommendations, and th those lists of recommendations can pretty much be distilled down to, you know, we want or we should expect that um, there should be a curtailing, uh, a limiting of the future growth of the Bracero program, um, and they also want to criminalize um, the wetback invasion, which is what they call it. Um, and so these these things can have very um, you know, part of this was, this was part of Truman's agenda to kind of limit the Bracero program, um, and to, to reinforce, um, or create more, um, to create a larger border patrol presence, um, along the U.S.-Mexico border, um, and 
Truman doesn't necessarily have, you know, full support for limiting the Brasero program. Agribusiness has a major lobby. Mm-hmm. They're very invested in seeing the continuation of this program, um, as well as politicians who represent um, who 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 represent places in Texas or California who are also very invested in keeping the Bracero program going. Um, but ultimately, Truman um, does sign Public Law 78 in 1951. Um, he, attend, he intends for this to be um, a piece of legislation that could hopefully down the line um, set in motion legislation that would be more aligned with um, his goals, his administration's goals um, of of limiting the Brasero uh, program and criminalizing um, the facilitation of employment um, of unauthorized foreign workers. But really what, what Public Law 78 ends up doing is it, it firmly roots the program for until 1964. Um, the number of Braceros skyrockets after it. And it the Bracero program also, um, there are many people in Mexico who cannot, who are not able to obtain a Bracero program. So this contract labor program also increases undocumented migration um, for people who have settled in the US, for people who are unable to obtain Bracero. Um, Contracts are really, you know, instead of limiting the Bracero program um, and, you know, securing the border, if you will, um, it increases the Bracero program and increases the amount of undocumented um, migration to this country. So ultimately, you know, it's very unsuccessful. The rhetoric of the wetback invasion is used in Operation Wetback by Eisenhower, um, who would be the following president. And so there are you know, for a number of reasons, very, um, uh, the consequences were, were, were probably unideal, I would, I would guess for, for Truman. Right, right. It, it's sounded like what usually happens with some sort of programs that you're pushing through. I want to do good, but there's other bigger factors going on and bigger fish in the sea that really want it. But there's all these little fish too. And the little fish that I like you talking about, yeah, I, I love when I'm reading these 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 books and these dissertations, finding out about new individuals that are those little fish that really want to help do good. And you keep mentioning Father Kern. Could you tell us who Father Kern is and what what was he why why is he so important for migrant workers? Yeah, so I um I'm I'm fascinated by by Father Kern. Um I, to some extent, I really see him as as part of the origin story of this book manuscript. His um, his his records, his collections at the Ruther were were what guided my my initial visit to um, to the archives there. Um, his was his his collections were the first ones that I looked at. They're the ones that I've. Kind of returned to most frequently. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure I've looked at 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 the records three out of the four times that I've been there. And this isn't he doesn't have a massive record size. It's not a massive collection. It's not you know it's not like the United Farm Workers or my most my most recent visit was to look at the the, the records for the Farm Labor Organization uh, Organizing Committee. Um, you know, which have boxes and boxes with with hundreds and you know probably actually it's probably thousands of folders in them. <laughs> and Father Kearns is you know he's got a few folders, but they're they're so important. Um, they're some of the clearest I think 
testimonies of um, written testimonies in English and Spanish, um, uh, transcriptions of migrant experiences um, that I've been able to find. Um, and so I really see him as this big part of it. And so um, Father Kern was born in the early 1900s. Um, he spent most of his career at Holy uh, Holy Trinity uh, Holy Trinity Church in Detroit, um, in the Corktown neighborhood. Um, he he was very devoted and and um, really applied himself to assisting immigrants um, that did end up coming to the southwest side of Detroit. Um, and so this this commitment, this this openness to helping migrants. Um, really drew and then by word of mouth continued to draw Mexican, Mexican-American and Puerto Rican uh, migrant farm workers to Holy Trinity Church. Um, one of the reasons why Kern starts documenting, why he starts transcribing these is that there would be these, um, there would be these, these labor hearings that would happen in Detroit. Um, I believe they, they typically happen in January. Um, and so that was a period when a lot of migrant workers had already left. They had either returned home, they, you know, maybe they found, maybe they were fortunate enough to find industrial labor. And so they were, you know, they, they were done with the migrant agricultural life. Um, and, Father Kern would, he could go to these hearings, he could say, you know, these, this is how bad, like these, these conditions are, these are what the wages that these workers are, are earning, these are the kinds of deductions that growers are, are taking out of their paycheck, and the members of the hearing committees could just be like, okay, whatever, that's, that's hearsay, you know, that's, we, you know, bring me a migrant worker then who can who can testify to this. And so that's one of these reasons why he starts, you know, he's like, okay, I'm gonna actually start recording these um these testimonies when when workers would um let's say they would bring complaints, they would be unsatisfied with the labor conditions or um they were, you know, working 12 hours a day and, you know, coming out with these meager paychecks. Um, and so they would, they would go to, um, they would go to Kern, they would go to Holy Trinity Church. Um, countless migrants traveled from throughout the state. And even from, I've, I've got records of, of migrants that were in Missouri that found their way um, to Detroit. How they got there, I have no idea. How they found out about him, I have no idea. Um, I, I can only imagine that, you know, that he he gained this reputation amongst farm workers. And if you had a complaint that, you know, there were workers there who would say, you know, if you've got, if you, if you need some help, or if you're, you know, trying to get out of this, you know, this is somebody that, that can help you. Um, and so migrants would, would be showing up to Holy Trinity Church. Um, Father Kern testified during the Truman Commission hearings, um, so he was a participant in it. Um, and, you know, I think one of one of the lines that um, that stood out or that he said was um, that the migrant worker has, some, has somehow found out that there's a priest around that listens um, and that they, they'd show up at the church um, at like one in the, like up until one in the morning. Wow. Um, and so he's just, just, he's, a, I think a really fascinating figure. Um, I, I actually started out with the the dissertation i'm not sure if i'll keep it for the book manuscript um but was this sort of auto ethnographic moment of when i was on my second research visit yeah my second research visit um 
I was just walking around Corktown um, and I came across a statue of him, um, which is, um, it's at the Clement Kern Gardens um, in Corktown. Um, and so it's, there's a statue of him just like, I was like, oh my gosh, like, what is this? Like, I've just been like doing, I had just in the archives, I've been doing a deep dive of his records, of trying to find out more about him, about finding out what his involvement and investment is with, with migrant farm workers in the state. Um, and then I come across this statue. So it's, it's a really cool statue to check it out. Um, I, I, I went there just to, just for old time's sake, when I was back there in September, just to visit it. Um, and I think in a New York Times, I, I can't remember if it's a New York Times, but in some obituary of him, um, he's referred to as the labor priest. Um, and so I think that that's something that of he's a figure that, he he's recurring all throughout there's probably you know there there maybe maybe the, the later chapters won't mention him but at least for like the first three chapters you probably cannot escape his name at least in some point whether whether directly mentioned or in the sources um so he is he is he's a figure that i just find completely fascinating and i still want to still want to know more about him yeah, so do I, because after I was reading your chapters and hearing about it, I was like, oh my gosh. This guy. <laughs> and that is so excellent that you found a statue. That is the beauty of archive, digging through these dry pieces of paper and what we like to call burning your eyeballs out all day long. And then go and experience something ephemeral like that. That's 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 touching. Yeah. Um, on this strain of social reform, there, of course, came the unions in the 1960s, the UFWA and flock that appeared to help uh, not only bring up pay, but housing and pesticides and making sure that there's clean water, everything you mentioned. Now, how did flock and the UFW organize workers on this transnational like network? And what I like, too, is especially how it moved into a singular word, Latina dot. Yeah, so I mean, I think this um, the '60s is really where we see um, these more um, successful attempts of of organizing farm workers. Um, as as listeners may or may not know, um, farm workers do not they're not protected um, by the National Labor Relations Act. Um, they are not covered by it, and so. There are there are earlier efforts at organizing farm workers, um, many of them less successful um, than the UFW, at least at least the, the UFW's initial success. Um, and so I think that, you know, considering these transnational elements are, are, are fascinating. Um, Ernesto Galarza and the National um, Farm Labor Union had this this very intentional um, idea of organizing a transnational union, but he also realized that there were um, that there were that there were great difficulties to organizing a union that was not completely um, based domestically um, that were that were migrants. Um, and so I think when when we consider when we consider the United Farm Workers, um, they do there are they. they the, a lot of uh, many of the members of the the union are made up of their their ethnic Mexican migrant workers, um, but they they actually um, you know and although these 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 workers are are individuals that might have transnational experiences that might have transnational ties um, to family, um, 
for collective bargaining reasons, I, I would actually say that the UFW was not, they were not interested um, in creating these a transnational movement because they saw it as an element that could weaken the bargaining power or their ability to collectively bargain. Um, and so I, I think it's really interesting to also think about, you know, what is the meaning of, of Latinidad, of, of, of solidarity amongst um, um all of the various ethnic and national groups um, that might fall under the category of Latino, um, because in many instances, the, the UFW actually, um, you know, they they actually weaponize um, or they, um, they they criticize the presence of of undocumented workers. They 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 actually try to exclude them. They they frequently use the rhetoric of. Um, of wetbacks in their own newspapers, um, and so part of what they saw that is that, is that they saw that um, that the presence of undocumented uh, migrant workers harmed their ability to create a cohesive union. They it, that they harmed their ability um, to collectively bargain because they saw them as is just being scabs or um, being a new source of labor uh, that could make the union members unnecessary, um, and so the the down the the, the downfall of the Brasero program, its disillusion, um, it is this very important moment because the UFW. It's no, I don't, you know, it's not, um, it's not a coincidence that the that the UFW really starts to pick up steam after the Brasero program. Mm -hmm. Um, the National Farm Labor Union um, is is in existence for for a bit, but it's not able to sustain uh, become a sustained union. Um, and so, after Ernesto Galarza is is done with the National Farm Labor Union, he he's very he does become very committed to ending the Bracero program. Um, and so it's very, I think it's very interesting to look at um, at the UFW during this period to look at how um, perhaps they were, you know, that they were not trying to follow that mold of a transnational union um, and to at least limit it um, in its scope domestically. Um, but then also how that, um, you know, what are the implications of that for the potential members um, or the, the, the members who would be part of that union? Um, and so during the same period, um, the Farm Labor Organizing Committee is also is also getting its its grounding. Um, it's got a much slower, I'd say it's a much slower trajectory. Um, Valdemar Velasquez, um, who's the president of the union, um, he I, I believe Flock is founded in 1967. Um, this is the chapter that I'm I'm like. I'm doing the research for, and I'm just about to start writing. So I'm still, I'm still <laughs> trying to figure figure my way um, around trying to figure out a lot of these dynamics for Flock. Um, but I am interested in looking at these different trajectories of Flock versus the United Farm Workers. Um, and so Flock is founded in 1967. Um, the UFW is founded a few years earlier, but it's it has this more meteoric rise. Um, into power and influence um, than Flock does. Flocks is more of a, it was more of a slow burn. It was, um, it took a, it took a much longer time for them to get to get started to secure those first contracts. Um, 
but I do think much much like the way that I see Michigan um, in relation to to California and to the Southwest, um, I also see flock in relation to to the United Farm Workers, um, and I think just the necessity of um, of really thinking critically about the influence that flock has had um, on the unionization on the the labor organizing efforts for migrant farm workers. Um, I think part of what I've just found so interesting about the organization is just one of their um, one of their very innovative um, parts of their organizing was this three-way bargaining um, between um, the migrant workers, so the farm workers, the growers who who own um, the fields that these migrant workers are working on, and lastly the the corporations that are really, you know, that are really above everything, setting the prices of of their goods, but also setting the prices that that growers can pay workers. Um, and so, one of the things that um, I think Flock does really innovatively is to engage all three parties um, to come to the bargaining table. And these these corporations, they're not just, you know, they're not small, you know, little companies that no one's ever heard of. We're talking about Campbell's Soup, we're talking about Heinz, um, really anything related to tomatoes or cucumbers. Um, and so these are major corporations that they are able to bring. Eventually, it's a very, it takes them a very long time. Um, there's all kinds of different aspects to it. Um, one of them, which which the the UFW also used was the, um, it's a secondary boycott. So, you know, if if you're boycotting grapes, then you'll also boycott the the food products that grapes would be used for so if you know if a wine company was getting their was getting their grapes from Giorgio, then you also boycott um you also boycott the wine that's using those grapes um and so secondary boycotts i believe are actually not allowed under the national labor relations act but since farm workers are not covered under it they're like what can you do you're like you right. can't stop us now like i mean so they were strategically you know they strategically um utilized their uh being ignored in the national labor relations act to to their advantage in that case at least um and so there's um flock also starts this a second a secondary boycott of of Heinz of Campbells of um Vlasic pickles all kinds of different subsidiaries that also fall under them. Um, and so I think that that's a very um, important aspect of what um, Flock has been able to accomplish. They're, they're a union that's still, um, that's still around, that they're still organizing. Um, I think uh, Baldemar Velasquez was recently um, elected to another term as president. Um, and so Flock is there that's kind of the um that's where i end the book is um is looking at this organization um seeing it as um as more of a midwestern movement um i mentioned that it's mostly that i mostly focus on michigan but this is really the chapter where i i i, I sprout out a little bit and start to um look at ohio at michigan um at indiana um and so I see it as this more regional movement um, that does have. Um, they had a lot of actions that 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 occur. They they get their start in Toledo, Ohio, but they're also very involved in Michigan. They're involved in Indiana. Mm -hmm. um, they they start organizing 
in the areas where the migrants are coming from too. So that means that they started organizing um, in Texas, they started organizing in Florida, um, they, they, they spurred out to North Carolina um, in the tobacco industry. Um, so I, I'm not going to get into uh, you know, I need to I need to kind of distill what the focus or I guess what my focus on flock is going to be for this book manuscript. So it will be focused on that Midwest the Midwestern component. Um, but I think also I'll just um, the last thing that I wanted to talk about in regards to flock is that I think it also gives us a I think looking at them gives us this different periodization of what the farm worker movement looks like. Um, the conventional conventional focus is going to be on some of these different um, these different um, accomplishments or gains um, or also struggles of the United Farm Workers. But if we you know if we take a look away from the UFW for a second and look at Flock, we see this um, you know that the late sixties and early seventies is not is by no means any kind of end for Flock, but it's really just the very beginning. Right. Um, they're securing their major contracts in the 1980s um, into the 1990s. Um, and so I think looking at Flock gives us this different perspective of, um, of this longer farm, uh, farm worker struggle. Um, and so that's, that's another reason why I'm really just interested in, um, in seeing what what Flock's impact is in the Midwest, but also outside of traditional periodizations of what the farm worker movement would be. Right. I can't wait to read, get to that point. When you get to that point, read how you interpret Flock. Um, I, can't, I can't wait to read it either. I, <laughs> <laughs> but more importantly, I, I remember having a poster boycott Campbell's when I was a kid. Yeah. And so I'm really curious about this strike. So you gotta, you gotta let me know more. There about are that. so many, I mean, in the flock and the flock files at the root there, there are so many just fascinating signs there. Um, some of the archive, some of the, some of the materials that they have there are, um, not workshopping, but they were trying to sample different like boycott. They were trying to figure out how to um, how to do different printings of different boycott logos. Um, so it's really, I mean, now everything is, you know, you can draw up signs on your your iPad, but there, you know, they were, um, you know, they're they were using like a glue stick to to put multiple images on a piece of paper that then you could photocopy or scan to to have like this seemingly cohesive like image but then once you once you look at the scan you can see like oh they just they just glue sticked like 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 a like a collage on this piece of paper to create this this master image wow. um, so it, it's fascinating in in the in the archives there to kind of just get at this just some of these aspects that I never, you know, you can look through their newsletters or their newspapers and see like, oh, you know, that's, you know, they've got it. They've got a very beautiful, very well organized thing. And then you can kind of see under some of these behind the scenes aspects of, of what it took to, to produce, um, to produce some of those materials that they I mean, were. Yeah. Um, that people forget. Were that's how people forget. That's how it was done. Yeah. yeah. And, um, <laughs> speaking of archives, last question. We're going to go. Um, we always love asking our researchers what collections they use at the Ruther Library, but also very importantly for this project as well is like what other archives are you going to? Because you're incorporating a lot of things from federal to various states. So why don't you give us a little taste of that as well as what collections are wonderful here at the Ruther Library? 
Um, so, I mean, it's, I, I tell this to everyone, the Ruther's my, my absolute favorite archive to go to, um, for already on four visits, but I, I can only imagine how many more are, are, are in the future as I, as I'm writing and revising and realizing like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have like skipped out on taking that photo, or maybe I need more of this. Um, but to start off with, I mean, Monsignor Clement Kern uh, records were the first ones that I started off with. Um, but I've also um, done a lot with the Agricultural Workers History Collection, um, the new Detroit Incorporated records. So that was um, that was still when I was I was still trying to figure out, am I doing, you know, am I trying to make this like a field to the factories type story mm -hmm. of 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 settling out of the migrant stream and and into um detroit so I, I haven't really used those too much but they they do have all kinds of records uh useful records um the united farm workers records so they have um you know they have the the larger organizational records but they also have more state-specific stuff like the michigan boycott collection um the cesar chavez papers um there's one of the ones that I was looking at recently was the Detroit Latino Records, which is a range of different um, Latino organizations that um, that the Ruther has collections on, um, the Ken Barger Papers, um, and then most recently, um, and most importantly, um, at least for, for where I'm at right now, um, or the FLOC, um, the Farm Labor Organizing Committee Papers. Um, and so those are... Um, that's not an exhaustive list by any means. That's kind of mm -hmm. the ones that I've used that I've dabbled with the most, but I have all kinds of smaller ones where I'm like, okay, I need a folder here. I just need a folder here. Um, so I've got plenty of those. Um, but I think something that I'm I'm very proud about in terms of of this project is um, that it is grounded in in multi-site, multilingual sources um, from U.S., Mexican, um, and Puerto Rican archives. And so, um, outside of outside of the Ruther, I've done research um, at the the National Archives in Mexico. So that's called the AGN. Um, I've done them at the SRE in Mexico, which is the Secretary um, for External relations, Secretary of Foreign Affairs. So they have all the records of, of Mexican consulates in the US there. Um, so that's also been a fantastic source. Um, I've gone to the Office of the Government of Puerto Rico in the US. It's a long acronym, it's OGPRUS, um, but they have all kinds of files on, um, on Puerto Rican farm workers, on the Department of Labor in the US. On, Puerto Rico's Department of Labor. Um, I went to the Harry Truman Presidential Library um, because in, at the Ruther, I was I was reading all these these newspaper recordings about the commission, but I didn't actually have the commission records, um, so I couldn't precisely say, "Oh, okay, this is." You know, I could hear there would be you'd have a newspaper article saying this Puerto Rican migrant worker at the end of their contract owed $9 to the Michigan Field Crops Incorporated, but I couldn't actually see what he was saying. Um, and so that's one instance where you had to, you know, go one step further and track down these commission records. So I went to the Truman Presidential Library in, in Independence, Missouri, um, to, to specifically for that. Yeah. Uh, but I've also gone to the uh, the National Archives in D.C., Library of Congress in D.C., uh, Bancroft Library in, um, in Berkeley. Um, and then that's all of this is not to mention the hundreds of like newspaper articles and 
right. other stuff. Um, you were covering everything. That's perfect. I'm, perfect I'm, research. I'm, I'm trying my best to, you know, part of it. I mean, part of, it, I guess that's why that makes this process so, so tedious is sometimes that you, I mean, you have that intuition to leave no, no stone unturned. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to actually leave some of that and just, you know, just start writing this vlog chapter, like just, you've got enough to just like start writing something. Yeah. Don't um, fall in the trap of there's so much more I need to read. I need to read more. I need to read more. You'll never finish your book that way. <laughs> I'm going to have to replay this segment of the podcast to like, as like a positive affirmation to just write the, just yeah. write the chapter. Don't, don't reread. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just do it. Well, and thank you so much for being on our podcast. I really enjoyed this. I've learned a lot as well. Um, as always, thank you very much. We can't wait to see your book come out. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I'll I'll be sure to keep you all. Um, I'll, I'll be sure to keep you all updated, and um, hopefully we can we can do this again when um when that book uh when that book does come out. Excellent. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. <laughs> Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Maybe you should get something more official than a Snuggie to, uh, for sound absorption. <laughs> Why? It's perfect. Yeah. This podcast is uh, held together with duct tape and bubble gum. <laughs> yes, it is. But we sound professional. <laughs>